Divorce, custody, paternity, alimony, these are all emotionally charged and complicated concepts that arise in family law, which is the subject of today's show, part two of three episodes. Welcome to the Barry Law Legal Podcast. Barry Rosenzweig has been an attorney for over 25 years and is nationally known as a visionary in his profession. In each episode, attorney Barry Rosenzweig interviews lawyers, real estate agents, lenders, and other professionals that bring popular legal-related topics into focus for his listeners. So get ready for an educational and exciting episode. Now, here's your host, Barry Rosenzweig. We're in the studio today with Joe Vicciolo, and we're going to be talking about family law. Uh, Let's talk about some uh, alternatives to a straight divorce or court or lawsuits back and forth. Right. Um, They've created, the the courts have created a lot of alternatives that help these matters for less money and faster, correct? Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Right. And I think what you're referring to is something that we call the E&E process. Uh, It's an evaluative, um, a neutral process. And um, when you are in the process, you might think it looks like mediation, the difference is that it's under the kind of the auspices of the courts, and they will order you into what we call an FE&E, which is a fine, uh, financial neutral evaluation, and, and the E stands for early. So you do it early on in the case, right? So it's not dragged out. Or what we call an SE&E, a social early neutral evaluation. And you have to check in with the court how you're doing. You have 60 days. Um, the, the attorneys pick the providers. You know, I have a short list of people who are very good at getting cases settled. And then you are, it's, it, there's a series of settlement meetings, sometimes financial. Now, in the financial early neutral um, evaluations, there's typically one person, um, frequently a very seasoned family law attorney or sometimes a CPA who works in the divorcing world. Because if you have a a complicated uh, marital estate, you might want to have a CPA as your neutral to help you settle. So that's that's one way. In the SNE, the social, that's about custody and parenting time. And you have one male evaluator and one female evaluator so that there's not gender bias. What are their credentials? Well, usually what I like to do, and and it's become, I think uh, most attorneys do, is you pick one of the uh, neutrals is a mental health professional, like a child psychologist, and another is an an attorney, so that you have the balance of one of the evaluators knows the law. So if the mental health professional is not aware, the family law attorney can say, "Uh, no, it can't do that, or that's, you know, I don't think that's, you know, reasonable. But then the mental health provider can say, look, developmentally, a kid that age can't handle it, you know, so they can kind of give you feedback. And so it's a series um, typically of settlement meetings. And the difference in mediation is that these evaluators are allowed to give feedback. Look, if you go to court, this is what I think your judge will do. And so it's extremely helpful because if I would make the same suggestion, the other side might go, no, 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 no. Or, you know, you're just more distrustful of the other person's parties are usually distrustful of the other person's attorney just by the nature of. So it's based on their experience. Yeah. It's sort of predictive of what the outcome yes. may be. It doesn't right. necessarily mean that will be the outcome, right. of course, but it gives you a. Yes. Based on their experience, yes. what will happen. Right. And I have just seen 
since this program, and it's been, you know, I want to say 15 years. It could be long. Who knows? But at least 15 years, these programs, it started in Hennepin County, and the number of cases that settle has just increased substantially with this. It's a great program. That's and you good. get to, yeah, you get to pick your provider. So I know who I like, who, you know, does good work and, you know, that sort of thing. Is that the same thing as collaborative law? No, or is that different? That's entirely different. Um, collaborative law was started, I don't know, about 25, 30 years ago by a, a family law practitioner by the name of Stu Webb. And he was just kind of worn out with the whole, uh, you know, custody battles and, you know, fights that people were having and the harm to the kids. And so he started a process um, whereby the parties at the beginning of the case sign a contract that they will not go to court. Right. And so they hire professionals. They have attorneys. They hire financial neutrals that work in the divorcing world. Do they do that through you as an attorney? Yep. So okay. some, each, each yeah. party still has an attorney. Yep. Each okay. party typically. I mean, there have been cases now and again where one doesn't. But but in a true collaborative case, um, uh, the parties say we're not going to go to court. And they'll hire. Sometimes there's a whole team of professionals, um, a, a child, like a child psychologist, a financial expert, um, if if they're mental health issues, sometimes a coach to help the, you know, offline away from the meetings. And so again, it's a series of settlement meetings. And the hope is at the end of the day, what will happen is they'll come to an agreement that can just be sent into the court. And because they're both represented, there doesn't need to be any court appearances. And the theory behind that is, um, you know, you want to kind of keep more control of your case. You still have professionals who are giving you advice and helping you, um, but you don't have the threat of kind of court hanging over you. And some people um, really like that. That makes them feel more secure and able to negotiate and that sort of does thing. It, so, does it work across the board? With, no. It doesn't. So what, so certain is it based on certain cases or... Facts, by by facts. So if I have someone who, and I practice collaborative law, I litigate, I have many more litigated cases, but I do have collaborative cases as well. And what happens is if a person comes in and says, I want um, to do this case collaboratively within that process, and it's just, it's a method of settling a case, right? Outside of the, what we call litigated, which isn't as scary as it sounds. Um, But um, I look for red flags because in the collaborative process, you have to be transparent. Um, In the litigated process, if someone is refusing to give me documents, I can issue a a subpoena. I can um, do what we call formal discovery where the the other party has to answer questions under oath. So I know that I can get the information. In the collaborative process, it's based on trust that each party will fully disclose assets. So if someone comes into me and says she always I she hides money she's got secret account you know that and then I'll say well this isn't a good match for collaborative because she might not be transparent and you have to have that level of transparency in collaborative it's you know it's a great process um, but is you it ha- more where they're amicable to the yes, divorce yes, and they're yeah. they're not contentious they don't right. want to hurt the other party they want right. to save money right they want to be right they want to be more careful about it um, they they still can be tense right because the parties are divorcing. Um, but a really good financial neutral often helps a collaborative case and go smoothly. So, as I said, it's it's a way, it's a method of selling a case, and they can be highly successful. Um, there's some criticism of it, which I think is valid in that if you don't reach an agreement, the parties, the attorneys need to withdraw and start from scratch. So they have to get new attorneys. And I believe the theory behind that is, 
you know, if you're committed to this process and we're not going to dink around with it, you're not going to like, see, can I get a better deal here or a better deal here? This is the method you've chosen. We're committed to it. We're going to um, get this figured out. So it's that was part of when Stu Webb created it. That was part of the thought behind it. Let me go back on something that you mentioned earlier about uh, child support and county services. Mm-hmm. How does that all connect? So if, you know, about child support and how do they get involved and if somebody doesn't pay sure. and, and he, actually, you know, what happens situation where they don't pay and do they ever, people ever go to jail because they're not making payments and how right. often does that happen? The, they, the judge has the authority to put somebody in jail. You don't see it very often for not paying child support. So what happens is there'll be a court order saying you owe X amount of dollars for child support. Um, per month. And let's say someone doesn't pay. Um, and let's say someone doesn't pay because he or she has lost her, their job. So what they'll do is they'll, they can bring a motion to say, can you reduce my child support till I get work again? So that's kind of one way that people can change child support. But when they just outright don't pay, right? Um, the, the obligee, the person receiving the child support can sign up for what we call 4D services. And that's a federal code. That's why we call it 4D that they are entitled to have the county collect the child support on their behalf. So the, the county can collect daycare, can collect what we call basic child support, and then medical as well. Um, so Collected from? From the obligor. The but what if, what if they don't have a job, they have no money? Is it sort of a... Right, the arrears are piling up, okay. right? And um, so what happens is that for a period of time, um, you, that's when the person who the payer has to go to court and say, look, I lost my job. I want it reduced. You know, and the court will say, okay, but we have an expected, we'll set it on for a review hearing. In three months, we'll see how you're doing with your job search, uh, that sort of thing. Most people, um, I have a case right now where our client lost his job and we negotiated a downward deviation from what he was paying until he found work. So we were able to get that worked out. But um, but the county can collect it. Some of the things that they can do is they can um, they can suspend a, le- a driver's license. Um, does that happen very often? Yeah, that happens it really does. often. Do they have to, um, the spouse who's supposed to be receiving child support, do they have to do something to have that happen? Yeah, they have to contact the county. Well, if they've already signed up for 4D services, then the county's managing that. Right, okay. so they have to be signed up for those 4D services to be able to have the county collect. Otherwise, is that something the county will take on their own as far as getting their license revoked, or is it something? Yeah, the county the county d- does all that. We'll, we'll um, be in touch with the county attorney working on the case about things, but I think most common is you'll see a driver's license suspended, or sometimes I'll have a potential client that comes in and says my driver's license got suspended because I'm not paying support, but I haven't worked for six months. Well, you got to tell someone. You know what I mean? You have to tell right. someone so that you can fix that and so get ahead um, yeah, of it. Obviously. Right. Is important. Interesting enough, I just saw this past week um, there was a Minnesota Supreme Court um, reinstatement of attorney whose license had been suspended for non-payment of child support. Interesting. So, yeah. So Were they a family law attorney? I don't. I didn't recognize the name. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I didn't know. Um, but the person, the obligor, had had shown that he his arrears were all taken care of, and I thought, wow, that's a pretty extreme step. I don't know how much the arrears were. I don't know, you know, the details. It just said that he had been reinstated after being administratively um, suspended for for not paying child support. Let's talk about this. It may be a touchy subject. Costs. Yes. For the attorney. Yes. Um, 
what do people do when they can't afford an attorney? You know, what right. routes do they go? I mean, just can you do it on a contingency? Can you? Is it hourly? Right. Is there flat rates? I mean, right. kind of explain that process. Sure. Um, family law attorneys aren't allowed to do cases on a contingency basis. So most often uh, we do hourly. We re- uh, require a retainer up front, and that will cover you know, so many hours. It kind of secures services. Um, and people often say to me, well, how much is this going to cost? So what I like to tell them is, I don't want to give them a number because if I say five grand and it's six, then they're like, well, you, you know, you don't want to um, give them misinformation. So I'll tell them, here's my hourly rate and here's how much the, this time this will take. So if we have two settlement meetings and they're four hours each, right? So take four hours or eight hours times my hourly rate, you know, then there's going to be um, the gathering of documents. You know, we need to have your 401k statements. We need to, you know, get, gathering the financial. It's kind of like an estimate. Yeah, right. You try, so I try and give estimates of time. If a case is going to go to trial, then all bets. I mean, that's tens of thousands of dollars. And the reason for that is because it's so labor intensive. Not only do you have your days of trial, right, if you have 10-hour days, you know, um, but the prep is to get your exhibit books, to make copies of documents. Um, it's very, very time-consuming. So that's where the costs, you know, are not only the time of the attorney, but preparing for trial. And that's why a lot of these cases are going towards the alternative methods. Right, right, and selling. And most cases settle. I think, you know, 95% of cases they say settle. Sometimes they settle early. Sometimes they settle. Uh, There's a process called a moderated settlement conference. And again, that looks like what people would think of mediation. And it's once trial has been set and it takes place at uh, the courthouse, whether in Hennepin County, the Family Justice Center, or Carver County, you know, wherever it might be. And the, the neutral comes to the courthouse and the two parties and the two attorneys work all day to try and settle the case. And the difference is that you have this trial hanging over your head and you don't want to have to pay attorneys to get ready for it. So there's like this, it's not, it's different than the beginning where like, let's see, you know, that sort of thing. By now they're like, oh, I don't want to go to trial. I don't want to take a chance. And so those are really, they're very successful. I I enjoy doing moderated settlement conferences. Well, I think in all areas of law, settlements are very, are better for all parties. Way better. Yes. Much better. Uh, And, you know, I see settlements as being where a good settlement is where both parties don't think they got the greatest deal. Right. Well, because yeah. if one party thinks they got a great deal and the other party doesn't, that's not a great settlement. Right. But if both right. parties feel like a little pain yes. but feel glad to be finished with it, right. that tends to go a long ways towards them right. agreeing to it. And I've heard judges many times say exactly that, right? It's a good settlement if you both feel like, you know, it's it's not perfect. Right. I mean, it's your it's yeah. your job to guide them right. in the right direction and give right. them, yeah. you know, the best advice you can. But right. sometimes they'll say... You know, right. I don't agree, and right. that's their choice. Right. It's always their choice, right? Always their choice. And yeah. how often is a judge sort of – you mentioned a little bit about this, but how much do they force a settlement? Or, or do they ever give predictive, uh, you know, issues about how they're going to – yeah. you know, sway the case just a little bit to the attorneys at least? Right. I Yes, and, and – so um, prior to trial, there's a settlement conference or something that's called a pretrial. It's different. It's not the same thing as a, a moderated settlement conference is right before, right before trial. But in a pretrial, everybody goes to the courthouse and we, they flesh out what are the issues, what, what can we agree on, what we can't agree on. And so it's not uncommon for the attorney to, to go back in chambers and say, this is what we're stuck on. 
right? Here are the issues, this or that, and and giving information to the judge. You have to be careful. The judge is the finder of fact, right? So um, he or she can't really say this is exactly what I would do. Um, but sometimes a judge will be really helpful in saying, you know, I just don't see this as a spousal maintenance case, or I just, you'd have to show this. So then we can take that back to our clients and say, look, we've got the, you know, a feel from the judge that that he or she might rule this way. So it's never, this is exactly what I'm going to do, because again, the judge is the trier of fact, and that would be premature for a judge to say, but you can say, they'll, they'll give you hints. Can you pick a judge? Um, no. So you can, you have one strike. So when a judicial officer gets assigned to a case, um, you get one strike. And then that means the next judicial officer, that's that's who your judicial officer is. Have you, how often or have you ever had a case appealed to the appellate court? No, not a ton. I mean, I haven't had a case where they, I'm well, sure that's not true. I did have, I did have a case where they appealed, right? But not, not, I mean, there's, Regular, you know, every week, if you look at the Minnesota Court of Appeals, uh, mainly unpublished decisions, there's there are family law cases, but um, I'm sure they're quite expensive, and right. also, yeah, they have to be, yeah, they have to have an outcome that they that's really going to make a difference, right. or they're really upset about, right? And you have to show what the legal error was, or how the judge, you know, misapplied the law. So it's a high legal standard to do that. Tell me a little bit, little bit about prenuptial and postnuptial agreements. Right. Yeah, uh, I think more pe- people are more familiar with prenuptials, but right. I'd like you to talk about it. But post, post are a little bit different and yeah. kind of, not I don't want to say newer, but they're becoming more common. So a prenup is right at the beginning of uh, prior to a marriage, at least 40 hours in advance, right? That you have a prenup and you lay out what's going to happen if you divorce, what's going to happen if one of the spouses dies. Um, and you include things like spousal maintenance and what, you know, you attach an exhibit that will say, here's all, you know, uh, party A's, you know, assets and the values, and then you do the same and everything is disclosed. And you just, it, it just is like the lay of land. What's going to happen um, should there be a divorce or sometimes a death? A postnup is after you're already married, you execute, it looks like a prenup, right? You say how everything is going to look, but you have to be married for at least two years after you execute it. So if you, um, people will often do that if, if the marriage is getting a little bumpy and they want to say, oh, we want to, we don't want to go forward, but we want to make sure these assets go this way. Um, and they, they want to try and see if the marriage is going to work, but they're not valid if they haven't had been married for two years after they're executed. It's not always where one spouse is very wealthy and the other spouse is not. Sometimes. Well, that is, yeah. but, but that it may be where they want to make sure that whatever they had is clear going yes. into the marriage yes. or once they're in the marriage make sure it's clear i made a bunch of money or, yeah. or inherited right. a bunch of money but i want to be entitled to that if something happens to us right and inheritances are actually non-marital so those are kind of out so if someone if you're married and you receive um a $100,000 inheritance from grandma right that's that is non-marital how and, long what if you what if well, if you co-mingle it, then you get a problem, okay, right? What Maybe, if you spend it? Same, I mean, that's gone, and you, okay. you don't, you don't just get it back. When they, if you right. still have it, right? Or you receive it, right? So if you receive an inheritance and you buy a house with it, um, and then you divorce, you can show that part of that house value is non-marital because you can trace it back to the inheritance. So uh, that's something. But in prenuptial agreements, um, you want to just 
be sure that you're addressing that these are these are our assets and any growth on those assets, any contributions, even if it came from marital money, is non-marital. So I'll give you an example. If someone has a retirement account and it has X value, if you put it in the prenup and you say in the prenup, any contributions made during the marriage are still non-marital, then you're bound by that. Because if you don't have a prenup and you have a retirement account, and let's say it has $10,000 in it, and then you marry, and when you divorce it has fifteen. part of that is going to be marital. So the entire retirement account isn't necessarily non-marital. Um, something I want to add here, and you tell me if you see this a lot, is real estate. Spouses buy a property together um, while they're married or maybe before they're married. And, you know, I know that has issues with who's yeah. entitled to what. But they get a mortgage and they get divorced and one spouse is, you know, granted the property, let's say. Right, yeah. Um, I think the assumption is that the, the spouse who transferred the property over is no longer responsible for the mortgage. That's not true, right? That's, yeah. Right, they still are responsible. Right. And I think sometimes, I mean, maybe, I, I would hope you inform them of that, but I think right. people don't realize it sometimes right. that all of a sudden... They're behind, the spouse who got the house is behind on payments. Right. And that's one of the things in drafting of agreements you have to be very clear on. So um, people mix up title and mortgages, right? right? Yep. So they think, okay, the title is in my name, so it's mine, or it's in the other spouse's name. As you said, I'm free and clear. But that second spouse is still on the on the mortgage note, right? Right. So if spouse who's awarded the house defaults and doesn't pay the mortgage, Second spouse, is, non-owner, is, gets dinged, yeah. right? Because the mortgage company doesn't care what your divorce no. decree says. No. They're going to say, so we'll put language in that says that if you're awarded the house, um, you have to refinance the note within X amount of time. And what get, if they can't? I mean, they're in violation of the de- decree, right? Right. But. right. Well, we usually, if we put that language in, we want to be fairly certain that that spouse can do it. Sometimes we'll have uh, language like they'll make their best efforts. Sometimes we'll say if they can't refinance within a year, then the house has to be sold, right? So there are different um, remedies. But we put language in a decree that says this person is going to pay the mortgage and has to indemnify and hold harmless the non-owner, right? The party who didn't get the house. Now, the mortgage company doesn't care about that. But what would happen is if the spouse who doesn't um, uh, or who doesn't make the payments on the house, other spouse can go back to the family court file and say, look, you know, judge, order this house sold because he's not making the mortgage payments. My credit has tanked. You know, so there's some kind of relief. And that is an unfortunate aspect of my work is, is when you see someone's credit who has, you know, stellar credit, um, just really going from excellent to poor. So. Do you ever see a situation with real estate where they stay on the title together? Well, they have to. We have to do a new deed. Then they have to be tenants in common. And if okay. they're divorced, they have to be tenants in common instead of joint joint tenants because otherwise they inherit yeah. the property. Right. Exactly. So yeah. So now and again, people will. Um, not very. Not very often, but yeah. What about um, what takes precedence? A will or a decree, or a prenuptial, or post I mean, you talked a little bit about that. You, right. know, you don't have to go into all those things, but right. how, what supersedes what? And I know, it, like, if you're in joint tenancy, sure. those things supersede, or beneficiary on an account, your right. supersedes the will. But how do the other things interact? Well, so if you, um, let's say that um, the way that we see kind of the will interacting with a property settlement, 
um, or a support obligation is um, the obligor will frequently be required to have a life insurance policy so that if something happens, that spousal maintenance can, you know, you'll get a life insurance policy that is meant to cover however much spousal maintenance or however much child support. Um, But now and again, someone will be court ordered to have a life insurance policy in the decree, um, but lets it lapse or doesn't do it. So we put language in our decrees that say in the event that the policy lapse or isn't in place, then the person, the, the recipient has a claim against the estate, right? That, that we're saying that this is an obligation that is, it's just, it, it's more hoops to jump through for that person. So it's better just to keep that. Um, for a will, it, they have to kind of be done in conjunction, like the will needs to match. So if you have a prenuptial agreement, right, um, that says this is how it's to be in death, right? Right. I would think that that would trump the will, right? Because you're saying that this is, this is the binding contract. And, right. uh, but you could duke it out. You could duke it out in court over it. Join us for our next episode for part three of this three-part episode on family law. Thanks for listening. This has been the Barry Law Legal Podcast. Tune in again as Barry interviews lawyers, real estate agents, lenders, and other professionals that bring popular legal-related topics into focus for his listeners. Barry Rosenzweig can be reached at 952-920-1001 in Minnesota and 480-227-2203 in Arizona. He can also be reached by email at barry at barrylaw.com or online at www.barrylaw.com.